Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And this week, I'm delighted to bring a new guest to the podcast. His name is Gary Boyson, quite a well-known figure in the South African financial markets community. You've no doubt seen him on CNBC and Business Day TV, and he's got quite a profile in South Africa. We've known each other for oh, quite a while, Gary. Um, and it's great to be chatting to you. You, you run the firm Rand Swiss, um, and you're going to tell us more about that. But welcome to Talking with Traders. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, we have, oh God, I can't even remember. It's, it, I think it's decades since yeah. we first met years ago. But, uh, it's yeah, at, least, at least 20 year. years, I think, at least 20 years. Although certainly that's how long I've been in the markets, and I know you've been in the markets more or less similar time, I think. Without, without giving away our ages. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit about your story, Gary, uh, just to get into the background. You know, How did you get into the market, and what got you to where you are now as basically running your own firm, Rand Swiss? Oh, I, I suppose there's the short story and the long story. We only, we only have 40 minutes. <laughs> so um, I, don't, yeah, I actually don't know where to start. So I suppose my, my yeah, like I had a, a very, I suppose, varied kind of educational background. I actually, I actually, uh, I actually got a scholarship to engineering when I when I left school, and I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left. So I did I did first year aeronautical engineering, and then decided that was terrible, and I hated it. And then I went towards a BCom, and after one year of BCom, I thought, oh, I love law, so I ended up studying law for a bit, um, and then eventually somehow tied it all together into an economics degree. I ended up studying classics as a second degree, and I, I think that the the interest in markets and the passion for markets really came actually when I when I moved to the the UK. Um, because I was about to enter the working world and I really had no idea what I wanted to tie all these basically just random subjects together um, with a little bit of like very technical engineering stuff, a little bit of law, a little bit of English, a little bit of classical culture, a little bit of psychology, uh, you know, like obviously, obviously kind of little bit of stats and maths. It was a, it was a real mess. Um, so I decided let's go to London because that seemed like a good idea. And, and I think that's where like, I really started to get very interested in financial markets. And I think it, it was at that stage, it was, it was uh, kind of pre-2008 uh, in that big kind of like very hypey uh, market. And, and I mean, I was living in London and I was working at that stage in Canary Wharf. And it was just the feeling of like of, of what the, the financial markets were. It was very tangible. You know, financial markets, I think, are, are so often you know, something that's so intangible. And it was just this very tangible 
like environment that, that I knew I wanted to be a part of. Um, so then I kind of, you know, like really shifted, shifted gear into, into studying economics and, and, and trying to get into, into the financial markets. Um, then obviously 2008 happens. I was actually working for a property company at that stage, one, one floor above, uh, above Lehman Brothers uh, in London. And I remember, I remember the whole thing happening. And I mean, it was, it was pretty scary. And I was this junior that really, I don't think, could fully appreciate what, what was happening in the market at that stage. Um, and then and then moved back to South Africa. I, I kind of uh, then was looking for a job in asset management or or trading or stockbroking, um, you know, in, in the depths of 2009. <laughs> and, yeah. and kind of looked at it and, and, and everyone was like, hey, you're joking, man. Like most of us are closing down. <laughs> We're not hiring at this point. Um, so then I ended up working in financial media for, for 18 months. And I think that's where I actually met you. And, and yes. it was actually the, the most wonderful experience because... I was interviewing all the fund managers and I was kind of moving around <clears throat> and, and, and kind of just building an incredible network in financial services in, in South Africa specifically. And, uh, and then after about 18 months, realized I could never actually be a, a publisher or, or a journalist. Uh, I think I'm just not smart enough. <laughs> so, so I thought I'd be a trader instead. So, so I got a publisher to phone around and, and, and managed to, to, to land my first job as a trader. And, uh, and yeah, the rest kind of is history. Then I, I worked for five years. Well, we started with that firm. That firm got acquired. Um, we ended up in, inside a listed entity. Um, basically, you know, worked my way up there. Ended up running a, a trading desk there for, for yeah, four, almost four or five years. And uh, I think eventually decided that, um, you know, looked around, as I think so many entrepreneurs do, and kind of understood the, the systems. And, and I think I also always had a bit of a problem with authority. And, and thought I can I can do this better if I do it myself. So so I I, I jumped out and, and that's where we founded Rand Swiss. Now well, I founded Rand Swiss and um, and yeah then it, then the, the real exciting journey began because I think as as any entrepreneur will will, will know um, you work a hundred times harder than you ever worked in your life and there's just so there's so much to it it's such an enormous experience and uh, and yeah I've, I've built that up over the last seven years and uh, yeah I've been very fortunate to be to be recognized uh, two years now as the the number one stockbroking or at least securities broken firm in South Africa so very 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 happy with the, the progress that we've made. That's it. And that, that's, uh, it's delightful. And I must say, I love it. Every year when I see those IntelliDex uh, stockbroker awards coming out, I see that your firm is right up there and you've been voted, uh, as you say, best stockbroker twice now. Um, and it's fantastic to see that as a young startup firm, you know, you're competing on the stage against some much bigger, much more established stockbrokers out there. It really is, it's a delight to see you doing so well. Um, and then to see that entrepreneurial spirit paying off for you. Um, why? By the name Rand Swiss, just before we get on to more interesting topics. Um, so, okay, so, so there's, <laughs> there's actually a lot of different reasons for it. Now, I don't know when, when the actual inspiration struck to call it Rand Swiss, but one of the things that, you know, one of the factors was definitely that the, the dot .com domain was still available as well. <laughs> so, so we managed to snag that along with the .co.za org net and all the other things that you have to do when you're building essentially, a, and you know, these days stockbroking will always be an online business. 
Um, it, it, uh, it, it, I think there's a lot of parallels that you can draw between it and, 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 and technology companies these days. Mm. But uh, yeah, that was one of the factors. But also, I'm, I'm South African, so I'm random. My wife happens to be Swiss. So, so, okay. so it was also kind of uh, RAND Swiss. That's kind of the, the, the juxtaposition of the two areas. And I think it's also just the, the, the kind of feel to the name was right, um, that you know we, we operate out of South Africa. I mean, our roots are firmly grounded in South Africa. And I think South Africa is, is an incredibly exciting emerging emerging and frontier market where you know when, when I was started you know in, in and Garth, you'll remember this in, in kind of 2006 to 2000 and uh, yeah, even nine, even 2000, even, even about 2010. I mean, emerging markets was the only place that you wanted to deploy capital. It was, it was the most exciting place to, to invest. And, yeah. and that kind of shifted uh, recently and, and, and the developed markets have just become so popular. But for us, it was, you know, the RAND was the, the frontier market, which was the, the, excite, the excitement and, the, and where you can generate real returns. And, and the Swiss was the, the more established the more traditional, um, you know, long history of, of banking in, in Switzerland and, and the very, very secure uh, side, of, side of the, the, the equation. So for us, RAND Swiss made sense. And I think it also ties into what I think we'll talk about a little bit later is, is, is our barbell approach. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic way that you can invest that, that you know, you, you ensure the security first and then, and then you kind of almost boost your risk up at, at the end, at, the, at, the, at, the, at either end of the spectrum. And... Mm. Um, and, and try and generate really high returns. So, so a lot of reasons why we call the brand Swiss, but it just kind of for, for so many reasons worked for us. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds professional and sounds it sounds smart. I'll say that it's a great name. <laughs> D- tell us more about the business because I mean, you know, you, you're a broking business, but you're not just a broking business. You've also got uh, wealth management side to the business. Um, so, just give us a little bit more insight into the business of Rand Swiss. And then once we've done that background, I just want to dig into some of the components of your business that are a bit more intricate if we can. Sure, no problem. Yeah, so so uh, my background was always securities broking. So that's that's really where we started. Um, and and we, we essentially launched a, a, a private, uh, what is now a private broking business, which is a very high touch uh, retail securities broking firm. So um, the idea is to deal with large clients, uh, you know, provide just an incredible level of support and service to them, uh, you know, get get hold of the best research content, uh, no matter how you how you you find it. Uh, make sure that you are actively engaged with their portfolios in terms of monitoring and and trying to position them correctly. But ultimately, they have the decision to buy and sell, um, not to unitize it or anything. Because obviously, with securities broken, you, you can you can get significant discounts in, in the cost of your investments as well. And you know, as my colleague Viv um, so so regularly tells clients and, and the media that there's no magic to, to 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 markets it's you know the closer you can get a client to the underlying investment that they that they're investing in um, the, the 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 better um, you know the, each each layer of I suppose management if you want to put it that way adds cost and complexity and, and often doesn't justify the um, the fee that you're charging for it um, especially because the market the, the kind of economic engine uh, underneath that can only do so much so that was always the idea kind of bring it right close to markets get clients close to markets and, and then give them all the support around it and um, that kind of uh, almost became a victim of its own success because uh, it's one of the big problems that we well, not problems but it's one of the big challenges at least that we've, we've always had in in the businesses is, is the, the ability to scale it 
um, because you can, it's very difficult to scale that kind of high-touch business um, in, in the early stages. So uh, that essentially naturally split into online trading and, and private broking. And the online trading being, you know, to cater for the client that is far more self-directed, that wants super, super low cost, uh, but doesn't need that kind of high-touch service. They want to take care of it themselves, or um, they just are happy to have um, their, their needs taken care of by uh, more mechanistic uh, services, things like webinars and research notes, rather than that person that's actually building that that, that individual relationship. And obviously, because that's a lot cheaper, um, you can handle smaller accounts. You can uh, handle, uh, you know, it becomes a cookie cutter model, and you can you can do fairly significant scale. Um, so those were those two businesses. Um, in 2016, we quickly added our managed portfolio business, which is uh, under our CAT2 license. Uh, that, again, just again gives clients the, the, the opportunity to expand down the almost the spectrum of service. So on the one hand, you've got the very low touch, which is the online trading. You move up there to the private broking, which is a little bit more uh, hands-on, but the client still makes their decision. Um, you know, we, we, we call it, say it, uh, trade on your own, but not alone, is I think the, the title of that, that business right. of the USB. Yeah. Um, and then the managed portfolio is literally saying we want to give you guys discretion to 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 trade on our behalves um and then we have you know basically say portfolio strategies that we have model portfolios that are tracked and audited um, that have track record that uh, fit specific risk profiles uh, that clients can buy into and invest in and uh, and that's kind of that that's that's kind of like takes care of really the securities broking side of the business um, and then all sorts of subsidiary products have kind of presented themselves over time as well so um you know the other we've got kind of it's called four other products, what your product segments that we, we talk about. So the one is um, our international transfers business. So we have a we're registered with the Reserve Bank. Now the reason we've got that is because 85% of our client base now sits internationally. Um, and I, you know it's it's just I mean it's a, a staggering stat, but I think a lot of uh, brokers and asset managers are feeling that just the demand for capital to be invested offshore by South African private clients. Yeah. Um, and that service basically just assists us with that. It, it gives us a very, very low cost way to transfer money internationally. Uh, and it kind of supports all our international products uh, and makes the whole experience for clients a lot more seamless. Um, we then obviously have a, a wealth uh, wealth managers as well. So, so Yaku kind of is heading that up, a certified financial planner. Um, he kind of ties into you know the, the the level of service that's required when it's not just about your securities portfolio and and understanding what you want to have and you know what shares you should be buying and selling. It's when you really need to understand your income and expenses and and, and kind of look at retirement and say what should I be doing as a client. Um, that uh, that is absolutely crucial. And uh, and out of that business, then also you know kind of developed the need for for the, the the truly medium risk product without just you know sticking our clients into into a balance fund. Um, you know, we we were looking for something. I mean, we try and apply our minds whenever we offer anything to clients, and that's that's where Verifu is probably one of the smartest people that I know. Um, came up with with uh, with our structured products business, which is is kind of specifically focused on kind of the, one the barbell strategy, but also a, a medium risk uh, approach to to um, to financial markets. Offer you know those kind of products offer clients a significant level of capital protection. Um, obviously, you know all of us having worked on a derivative desk previously, I mean, we we're fortunate enough to be able to do the pricing. We've got some incredible relationships out of Switzerland and and with the local banks in South Africa that that allow us to to go and price price up the options and uh, and price these structures very very aggressively mm-hmm. and and I, I feel like we've got the capacity now to to when a structured product comes out from one of the the big uh, the big local institutional product houses uh, we have the ability to to very very accurately tell 
um, you know the risks and and the, and the pricing around them. Which uh, you know, if 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 a bank let's say comes out with a structure and they're offering a coupon of let's say eleven percent, we can very very quickly price it with competitors and then look at the underlying mechanics of the product and say this should be priced at fifteen sixteen. We can avoid it. So it, it's given us I think a nice um, a nice ability to generate alpha for our clients just just on product selection. Um, and then finally, last product was, was uh, tax-free savings accounts, which is kind of a pro bono product, to be honest, Garth. It's, uh, it's, it's something that we, do, we make no money off it, um, just to stop the, our clients or, or the general public gaming us. Um, we've said you have to have a, one of our other products before you can have a tax-free savings account uh, with Ransfus because um, we have now one twice in a row best tax-free savings account in, in, in South Africa. And it's essentially because we do it for free. You know, we don't charge clients <laughs> anything for it. We've got a fully managed TFSA and it's uh, it's obviously an equity-based stockbroking uh, TFSA, which for us is, is the most sensible way to approach a tax-free savings investment because... Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the mechanics of how you're going to basically maximize your tax saving, you should be looking at an ultra long-term product, which just doesn't lend itself to to an interest-based product that the banks are offering. It mm. uh, it really it really does lend itself to a diversified equity portfolio, which uh, which is what we've built for clients. And okay. uh, very very proud proud of that that little business, and it's, it's definitely gaining traction. But as I said, only open to existing clients. Okay, very interesting. So basically, look, listening to everything you've said, it kind of Tying it all together, it's very client focused, very client centric. Um, I know you you said off air or before we started the recording that uh, you know you you see only three ways really that you can add value out of a business, um, and that you you specifically choose to focus that value towards the client. Just articulate that a little bit more for me the way you did before we spoke or before we started the recording because I thought that was really interesting. Sure. Yeah, so I suppose it comes out to people, products, and profits. <laughs> but yeah. it's essentially any economic enterprise, whether you you're running a business, you know, running a business, whether you're, it's a mining company or a retailer or a, a investment firm, um, you can only allocate economic value in, in three buckets. If you want to put it that way, you can, you can allocate it either to profits, which is is to shareholders. And and the, the shareholders of a business, you know, they take dividends, they take the capital gains uh, that the business as the business kind of like build, builds up its um, its value inside itself. Um, that's the one way to release it. Uh, fortunately, that's just because we're, we're you know, kind of founder founder owned and managed. Um, there, there's really no there's no short term incentive. Or, or any board or any shareholders to keep happy other than ourselves. And because we've got a 40, 50, 60 year time horizon on the business, um, it's, it, you know, there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no shareholders clamoring for dividends and, and looking for it, so which, which gives us the ability to focus one on the long term, um, but also to allocate that entire segment across, across the other two buckets. Now, the other two buckets are, okay, people. So people, people are the people that work within the business. So it's either the management or the business if it's not owner managed. Um, it's your executive team. And, and remember, you can apply this thinking to any, any company that you're analyzing. Um, and the staff. So how are you compensating them? Now, you've got to compensate staff at, at a specific level to attract the right talent. There's, there's no question about that. So you can't just ask people to work for free because as I've discovered, after asking them, they don't. <laughs> so... Um, but, but I think I think you can you you can allocate only enough to staff to keep them interested and you, you know I, I kind of 
you know, because we're a startup, I think a lot of our our, our people um, buy into the, the longer term dream of the company and, and they're, they're looking at it. They've joined a startup. They haven't joined a, a large institution. They, they're not working for, uh, you know, uh, one of the big four banks in South Africa. This is not, they're, they're taking on a little bit of risk. And I think they, they will one day expect to be compensated more fairly. <laughs> but, uh, but the first thing I say to everyone, you know, in our, in our company, I know, I know that they work well below what their, their market value is, but but I, I and I, I'm incredibly grateful for the expertise and the, and, and the effort that they put in, but but the value isn't allocated to them either. The excess value, should I put it that way? And, and the last the last place is, is what Ben Horowitz would call profits, at least their product, um, but that's that's essentially for us would be our clients. Um, you know, and the way that you allocate value there, instead of you know charging, you know the way that you wouldn't allocate value is you charge what the market can bear. So, you know, yes, you could uh, deliver your Coca-Cola, for example, at five rand a Coca-Cola because that covers your cost and gives you just enough margin to keep your shareholders happy. Um, but your competitors are delivering Coca-Colas at 10 rand, so you deliver at nine rand instead. There, you're, you're, you're sucking economic value from your, your customers. And um, and what we do is we essentially allocate all that value to our customers in, in the in the, the in the way of much, much lower fees than our competitors. Um, where we don't lower the fees, we, we then spend that money on, on better research for, for, our, for our customers, uh, better, better platforms, better systems, and, and all the things that, that, that generate value for, for our clients. And, and I hope why they <laughs> vote for us and, and, and why we've won awards, because it, re- it really is. I mean, if you, you know, when, you, when you're building a, a startup business like we're building, it's, it's absolutely all about um, building a reputation. And in our industry, as you know, reputation is absolutely everything. So, yeah. so the only way that we can do that is, is by constantly exceeding the expectations of our clients. And, and we do that by basically making sure they get all the value. Okay. All right. That's excellent. It's good to hear. Um, you, part of your business is the, the self-guided, the self-directed trader. And because this podcast is talking with traders, I do want to just hone in on this a little bit more. Uh, you know, you've, you've mentioned you've got the different levels. So you've got a client who just wants the lowest execution fee and he wants a platform to execute. And that's it. And the, you referred to that as the, the lowest touch client. And then you've got the, uh, guided broking client. I think you referred to it as something like that. And then of course you've got the fully managed client. But let's just focus in a little bit on the on, on the bottom two or the first two of those three. The the guys that are completely self-guided that just come to you because they want the lowest execution fee and they're going to push the buttons themselves and do all of their own trading. How do they do typically relative to the clients who actually have their hand held by you in a in a guided broking service? You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Terribly. Really poorly, <laughs> and, and and I mean I've got we've got the the stats to to back this up. So you know when we look across the spectrum of of assistance, if you want to put it that way, um, you know it, it's it's quite clear that that the people without assistance that are pushing the button themselves um, do materially worse than than those that that have a professional help in them. The the numbers speak for themselves. And you, you might think that you know it's the type of client that we're attracting, but I can tell you right now we have in, in the type of client that is genuine, genuine, generally attracted to that 
super low cost execution model um, is someone with a, a significant amount of experience because you know the 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 average retail trader doesn't wake up and say i don't need any help i'm i'm pretty good at this i'm going to i'm going to do it all myself it's generally the guys that have worked on trading desks that have been in the industry they're they're experienced market professionals that have either executed for hedge funds or that may, they come to us because they they know they're going to get the, the the low cost they know that our our systems are very very robust and uh, and unfortunately you, you kind of you, you almost say we have our initial meetings with them and, and we have the chat and just this guy's going to kill it he's, he's he's an absolute market professional um and then you kind of look at the account you're like oh this guy doesn't actually know what he's doing you know he's he's really really suffering so so it it, it, it it's it's weird and and it but it, but the, the the numbers uh the numbers do unfortunately speak for themselves yeah so it's very interesting so basically what you're saying is if you if you're a, a retail client wanting to take on the market Get a, get a mentor, get some help, get someone to hold your hand to help you with the risk management, the position sizing, and basically to just get the basics of trading right. Because as Absolutely. you say, your numbers don't don't uh, don't yeah. seem to stack up. Yeah, and 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 it's, I mean, you, you know, we, we use again, we used the example off off air before the the podcast. And I was kind of chatting about it. You know, so many people, you know, trading is so much about confidence. Um, it's the confidence to go out there. I mean, what is a trade in in, in its essence? It's it's just matching an order. It's 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 one person saying I'm willing to buy at this level, and someone else saying I'm willing to sell at this level, and and that executing the, a trade. That's that's all a trade is. Now, for anyone to be able to pull the trigger, and I mean, God, you know, that that's what trading is all about, is, is, is pulling that trigger. Yeah. There has to be a level of confidence that when I buy the security here, it's going to move in, you know, if I'm buying, I think that I'm going to be able to sell it higher at some point in the future. And, and that, that confidence, and, and I think, unfortunately, what happens in the market and what is so prevalent, and one of the reasons I'm always happy to do, do your show, because I, I consider you one of the, the better, at least probably one of the best, but absolutely top educators in, in the, the retail financial market. Um, but there's so much garbage out there. And uh, I mean, there's just so many stories. I mean, you speak to people about, you know, people that, that have gone to a financial market educator or been sold a training program or that. And, and the guys have sold that confidence to the client, but they haven't actually sold the technical expertise behind it. Um, so the guy has the confidence to go and pull the trigger. He just doesn't actually know what he's doing. Um, and that's the problem. And, and it's once these guys have been sold the conference, they moved to there. And, and, and I mean, we used to, we, we kind of used a metaphor. And it, it, it's very much like these, these very low quality educators are, are promising guys, don't worry about it. You know, soccer is a very easy game. You know, playing football, simplest thing in the world. You put, you put a ball on the pitch and you kick it into the goals. You see, now you understand how to how to play football. You know, you just kick a ball into the goals and whoever kicks the most balls in, they win. Can you kick a ball in the goal? And the clients go, yes, I can kick a ball in the, in the goal. No problem, because look how easy it is. It shows it. And then suddenly that person is put on a field and, and playing against Real Madrid. And then they just can't understand why. Why do they keep scoring goals? Why can't I score a goal? What's going wrong here? It's such a simple game. I just have to kick the ball into the, into the net, into the goals. And... Um, and I think that's that's exactly you know uh, analogous with uh, with trading. Uh, you know, it's it's very simple to to make a buy and sell decision, but to do it well and to actually execute perfectly and 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 to to kind of take into account all the things that makes a trader great or not great um, is an incredibly complex thing and, and often a lifelong long pursuit. So, yeah, that's. That's yeah. kind of where I see it. <laughs> all right. Interesting. I want to move away from all of those kind of mechanical things about markets and trading and just talk a little bit about 
br- broadly where we find ourselves in the global economy and the financial markets at the moment? Because I know you do run some discretionary portfolios, and obviously you are a, a trader and an investor in your own right as well. So you follow these things very closely. But we sit right now in a, a qu- quite an interesting, quite a turbulent and potentially troubling time in financial markets. Uh, from a backdrop perspective, we obviously at the we certainly at the more mature end, let's put it that way, of a bull market that's been running hard since 2009, since the financial market crisis. And obviously, if you exclude the dip that we saw during COVID, one can say that this bull market has effectively been running for, for 13 years now. But we're in an environment where a lot of the drivers of that have been removed or they are being removed. So the Fed stimulus, the central bank stimulus is being pulled back, tapering's happening. Interest rates have been at record lows for ages, but now you know, the, the central banks are becoming, becoming more hawkish and right, raz, rates are rising. There's a lot of talk around potential stagflation coming. Uh, and yet, besides all of that, valuations at a broad level, for particularly for US equity markets, are still quite rich. Does that worry you looking out over the next, say, Five years. Uh, if, if how are you positioning discretionary managed portfolios given that kind of backdrop that we're seeing in the markets at the moment? No, I think it, it definitely. I mean, the rules of the game. I don't know if we can just exclude COVID, the COVID dip, though. <laughs> it's like if we exclude two thousand and eight, I think you know then then the bull market's been running <laughs> running for decades. Mm. And um, it's uh, I think I think. What happened under COVID has materially changed things in the world. And, and obviously, we've got Russia and Ukraine now as well. That is just compounding issues that, that, are, that are starting to surface. So, yeah. I mean, everything you said is accurate. I mean, inflation is, is definitely coming. I mean, the idea that inflation was transitory. I mean, you know, we, we actually do our own internal dot plot. In our, in our, we have regular research meetings and, and we, we kind of run, run our own dot plot on where, where we think uh, inflation and rates are going. Um, and, and I mean, the idea that this was going to be transitory, it, it was very, very difficult for us to, to, to swallow that narrative. So the way that we were positioning portfolios is we were positioning for, for a higher inflation environment. And, and there's a couple of things that you need to do with that. Um, one, we, we, we believed, you know, post-COVID, um, with the supply chain disruptions, with the, the kind of idea that, uh, you know, unemployment was going to come down specifically in the US and, and we were going to see... Um, you know, and we were going to see inflation creeping into the system. And if it, it, crept, uh, if it uh, crept into the labor market, it was going to become more entrenched. And we were going to run at a higher long run uh, inflation average for a while. And I, that's still very much our base case. Now, when that happens, you need to start shifting for, from those kind of traditional growth stocks into more value, value-based uh, investments. Um, and that really means it's what we've been seeing playing out uh, now. And it's, it's almost just been compounded by the, the Russian-Ukraine situation. Um, basically, an exit, as you say, from that, that very expensive uh, US tech um, and, and a move towards the, the kind of more traditional um, inflation hedge sectors. So uh, the likes of banking and, and uh, commodities as well. So as, as a decent inflation hedge, anything that uh, you know, has physical physical properties <laughs> that, will inflate, that will inflate. And then also businesses that, um, that have fairly low gearing that can easily ride out uh, the, the, the forecast interest rate increases. Um, and they have very, very solid cash flows. That's, that's kind of the, the kind of businesses that, that we've been looking at because you know, there's the concept, I'm sure you've heard of it, uh, Tina, there is no alternative. Um, in a high inflation environment, if you look across the asset classes, 
you you can't hold cash. It, it's just that that is suicide. To to be sitting on high cash balances in an inflating environment, you are just eroding the the value of of your capital. So mm-hmm. cash is out. It's not it's not really an option. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a rising interest rate environment, uh, but the bond market is also a pretty scary place to be in, especially with the the kind of uh, intervention that we've seen from central banks over the years. Um, you know, you look at it. I mean, we've just had a, a yield curve inversion, but if you look at the bond market, I mean, when when interest rates rise, you know. Bond bond prices fall, so yeah. so the bond pi- the bond market is probably also not the place to be holding to, to be deploying capital. Now even and that's that's I'm talking if you're trading bonds, but even if you're picking up a, a let's say a, a five year treasury or, or five year corporate debt or whatever you are, and you're looking at at five year duration, even if you hold to duration and and receive your coupon. That coupon relative to interest rates in, in let's say five years time, if inflation does become more persistent. Could be abysmal, <laughs> you know, so yeah. so I think it's it, the bond market is also a very very tough place to place to be invested in uh, at the moment uh, in a high inflation environment, which kind of leaves you with, with okay, you know, some people split property out as it's in individual asset classes as across others don't, but. Yes, property, you know, we feel probably will do well, but there are also big changes to property markets. And, you know, it's always difficult when you talk about tactical asset class allocation because, you know, these are not made, they're not, they're not, um, how can I say, like homogenous. Uh, a, a property market, you know, a residential property unit in South Africa is a very different prospect from a, um, a, a warehouse in the US you know, so, yeah. or, or a data center in the US. So, so, you know, it's difficult to talk about property in general, but uh, I think there are real concerns around around the around property as an investment asset class, but but probably more attractive than bonds for us um, if you're looking at risk weighted terms, and the, and that kind of leaves you with stocks. So 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 for me as an asset class allocation, I think I do believe if you're a long term investor and you can ride the volatility out, um, stocks are going to continue to produce better returns than the other asset classes as they have done traditionally. Um, but the type of stocks, as I said, these are not homogenous. Asset classes are not, not a, you know, homogenous. So and you you need to be very very selective. I think in in the way that you pick your stocks. Um, and yes, I think the US is, is has has been pretty expensive and it's one of the reasons that I mean, especially after the russia ukrainian crisis that we have been deploying a, a lot more capital into europe um not that we think we're going to get exaggerated growth rates there but just the the, the profile of their earnings are a little a lot more interesting a lot of the, the structured products that we've created have uh, euro index uh, links to them um we also have you know it's one of our managed baskets is a european basket um which comes with its own benefits uh, you know from the site's point of view and, and there's a whole lot of reasons that you would want to be in europe um uh, other than it, that the stocks on a valuation basis are a lot cheaper but um am i worried about the us specifically and us stocks um not i, I don't think so again it comes for me it comes down to you know are you deploying into the right kind of companies and i think well canada has i think just just snuck ahead of the US. <laughs> the US has traditionally been the place that if, if you had a, a child that you'd like to, uh, well, let's say not a child, but like, let's say that you were at the absolute peak of your game, you were the top of your profession, the best engine, the best robotics engineer on the planet. Um, where do you move to, um, to, to maximize your earning potential in those skills? 
um, you probably don't move to South America. You almost definitely don't move to, to South Africa, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you probably don't end up in, 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 in Tokyo or, or Beijing. You, you go to the US. You, go, you probably end up in Silicon Valley. And, and as long as the US is going to, to attract the, the best talent in the world, um, its markets and its companies will do better. Um, at the same time, if you look at the, the regulatory changes that we've seen in China that have put uh, <laughs> our, our, our mass person process under so much pressure via Tencent and the likes of Alibaba, Baidu, et cetera, the US is, is a very unique system in, in that it is so pro-capitalism and, and the protection of shareholders is, is so ingrained in the culture of the US that I think it's very it's very difficult to see a market in the long run not outperforming the US. So for me, it comes down to picking the right the right companies in the US. Yes, I think the move a year ago was was absolutely to move into kind of a more more value based approach, uh, like more value based uh, stocks. But at the moment, I do think that at some point, and, and maybe it's not yet, because the the kind of value and growth. Um, playoff interplay that can be very very long term i mean it can run for years um but i do think at some point that the technology companies in the u.s will will become attractive i mean we've seen significant share price re-ratings in a lot of them so you know it does this mean we only buy banks and commodity companies absolutely not i think uh, for for investors deploying new capital there's some very interesting opportunities in the u.s tech space as as the market has uh, kind of lost favor with it yeah okay super one one area of your um your discretionary managed portfolios that are, that caught my eyes, what you refer to as uh, managed core and explore. Just can you unpack that a little bit? And particularly the explore part gets me interested. Um, I'm, in, I'm envisaging something where, you know, core, I guess, means, you know, long-term, stable, tried and trusted track record. And then the explore side of things, I guess, is more interesting. That's where it's, you know, you're taking a bit of a swing at, at new ideas. Can you just give us a little bit about that? What do you what do you look for in the in the core and explore model portfolios? Yeah, so the core and explore is essentially a core and satellite uh, strategy that we run for clients, um, and it's you know while we are active managers, I think there's there's a lot to be said about passive, and I mean I think it's a whole podcast we could talk about my, my views on passive investments, but because uh, I, I think I've been quite quite vocal about what I think they're going to do to the market eventually, but. Um, the, passive, the core and explore uh, strategy that we run is essentially it's it's a composition of active and passive. So the core is essentially a passive core. So you go you open a personal share portfolio for for a client, um, and you you put in a core of uh, of ETFs. So so generally passive passive tracker ETFs, um, and essentially buy some beta within the portfolio, um, and then you will explore component, uh, which is what you're talking about, are, are the satellite positions that you put around it to try and generate the, the additional outperformance, uh, out the alpha. Um, one of the, the benefits to, to this is that it can be, it, it's usually more appropriate for smaller clients. Um, so remember, we, we do prefer to go with direct stock holdings for clients. We, we don't unitize our products because we're a securities broker. So um, if, you, if you're looking at building a portfolio, but, but you don't have uh, enough capital uh, to go into a direct stock portfolio, which generally sits at, at probably about 500,000 Rand, if you're going to get uh, proper diversification in that portfolio and, and kind of keep your execution costs reasonable um 
it, uh, it, it serves kind of like that smaller client base. You can buy, you know, you can get decent diversification with the ETF. You, you've got a nice beta tracking uh, passive strategy and, and you can then go and pick the, 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 the kind of more exciting stocks uh, in, in the satellite portion or, or the explore portion. Now, the way that we pick those stocks is, is pretty much identical to what we do in our global equity portfolio or, or our South African equity portfolios. Um, and, and, and I mean, that comes down to the methodology of, of how we pick stocks, which is we call it kind of top down meets bottom up. Um, we kind of take a macro view of what's going on. And I think that's where we kind of do our macro tools. We, we kind of discuss it at length in the investment committee meeting. Should we be taking a, you know, which geographies are going to do well, you know, value versus growth, all, all of those kind of discussions happen there. That decision is made. We kind of look at the, the index or our, our benchmark, and then we kind of go overweight, underweight the different sectors based on our macro view. But then we rely heavily on, on kind of sell-side research and, and understanding the companies at, at a very, very fundamental level that we're investing in. Um, and putting putting those companies into the portfolio. And if you see material mispricings or, or you're seeing a really exciting opportunity, um, that uh, that would then form part of the the explore or the or the satellite segment uh, of that of that uh, corn explore portfolio. Okay. All right. Super. Brilliant, Gary. We are running towards the end of our time allocation. So I'm going to just ask you one more question, I think, um, maybe two more questions. I always like to ask new guests who come on the podcast about books and if they've got any specific book recommendations. A lot of the traders and investors that come on have, some some of them have actually recommended the same book to me from a number of them. But if you had to give us two or three of your best books that you've ever read from a market's perspective, what would they be? Best books. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> so I think I think there's, there's different there's different categories. I suppose there's different categories, and and I, you know, for me because obviously we started a business, and it's, it's not really market related books, but probably one of the best business and, and money making books, if you want to put it that way, um, that I've ever read is, is the hard thing about hard things by, by Ben Horowitz. I think it's it's an absolutely incredible book. Anyone who hasn't read it and is is you know, whether you're in financial markets and a- analyzing, you know, almost the early stages of investment, remember Ben Horowitz kind of partnered with Mark Andreas and, and runs Andreas and Horowitz now. Um, but I mean, it, it's an absolutely incredible book about the, the, the real struggles that the startup businesses go through. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, it's probably the best, the best book ever, but, you know, I'm also, you know, th- those are kind of the struggles that I'm going through there. I'm not just, a, it's not just pure trading books anymore. Um, another one that I'm reading at the moment, which is which is wonderful, but it's again, it's more of a leadership and management book, which is the Jocko Willink and Leif Babin uh, dichotomy of leadership. Also, kind of like I would definitely put on anyone's recommended reading list. Um, but if you're looking specifically for trading and, and something that's that's very accessible to to retail investors, I, I, I love the Michael Lewis books. I think I think they're brilliant. The Big Short, Flash Boys, um, any any retail client that that's interested in markets and, and kind of understanding. Um, the playing field, even. Um, I think that's that's also definitely recommended reading. Um, you know, if you're looking for something a little bit more complex, uh, obviously in the Seam to Labs uh, books on you know his, his kind of ideas on risk are, are, are very very unique and very very interesting and worth also worth a look. Um, mm. But yeah, I suppose just to read widely. I, I think the most recent book I finished was Putinomics by Chris Miller. Okay. Um, money and power in the resurgent Russia. And, and that was, you know, I think that's why I love markets so much because, you know, things change so quickly and, and so quickly you have to upskill yourself on, on different segments in the market and, and really kind of almost zoom in and, and have a spotlight on, on, on whatever the force is that, that is driving sentiment at that time. Yeah. And obviously with the, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis, I mean, I, I, I had to 
quickly upskill myself on, on 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 the history of economics in Russia, and and I think you know Putinomics was was a, was a very interesting uh, interesting take. Okay, fantastic. All right, Gary, I think I'm going to wrap it up there because we are out of time. Uh, it's been great chatting to you, I must say, and I look forward to getting you back on the podcast at some stage in the future, probably talk a little bit more specifics about markets next time. But um, yeah, thank you for joining me. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, and to listeners listening to this podcast, if you wouldn't mind, give us a review. Give us, uh, if you like the podcast, if you don't, leave us a note on your preferred uh, podcast app that you listen to and we'll be back with you next week gary thanks very much once again that's a pleasure thank you very much for having me on okay thanks for joining us for today's episode of talking with traders brought to you by ig a world-leading cfd provider we really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series please follow us on facebook and engage with us there and a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.